I'm going to DM Dickshaw her first tweet, and we're going to get into it. Let's keep it popping, baby. Okay. I saw someone reading one of my books by the swimming pool, and I ducked into hedges to hide for reasons unknown to myself, and now cannot bring myself to emerge. (laughs) And that got 24 comments. 32 retweets, 1,273 likes. I've had that experience a few times in New York. I've seen people read my books on the train. I've seen people in India reading my books or picking my books up at a bookshop. Um, So I have had it a few times. I think near a swimming pool with all these beautiful people in Miami was the most out of place experience and unexpected experience and therefore delightful. So this is uh, for The Cut and for New York Magazine. I wrote about my beloved grandmother and my family's refusal to be nice to each other <laughs> with thanks to Jen Gen, who, who edited the piece. That got 130 likes, 27 retweets, and there's an amazing photograph of you and what I am assuming might be your mother and your grandmother. Is that the case? That is exactly it, yep. Can you tell us a little bit about your grandmother and your mother? So my maternal grandparents, they moved into the building next to us when I was three years old. So I was extremely close to them. You know, my grandmother had children very young. She had my mother when she was 17. Wow. When I was born, my grandmother was still very young, very fit, both my grandparents. And so they took a very active role in our lives. And my mother was pursuing her career and did not want to take time off from it, which was very unusual in India in the early 80s. May I ask what her career was? They're both academics. So my mother's a sociologist and my father's an economist. They were very present. We always had family dinners at five, seven nights a week without exception, etc. But uh, the, my mother was able to do it in large part because of my grandparents next door. After school, we, my brother and I would always go straight there. They would give us lunch. We would do our homework in their house. They were like second parents to us. We were very, very close. And you were happy in their company. Is there anything about your grandmother that's uh, of particular note, like storyteller She was very bound by the traditions of the India that she grew up in. Her father died when she was two. She had no brothers. So she grew up without the societal protection that having a close male family member gives you in India when she was growing up. I sort of became aware of this as I got much older because when I was younger, I was quick to judge what I thought was not feminist. You know, she wore only saris. She always did all the cooking, trivial markers. But then as I got older, I saw her deep-seated feminism, for which she never had the language, because that was just not the world that she grew up in. How did that manifest? A very specific example is that when in 1996, my grandparents were traveling from America back to India after a holiday. And at Heathrow Airport, my grandfather walked off the plane, fell to his knees and died of a heart attack. Oh, dear. In front of my grandmother. She had never known any life except the one with him. She had been married to him at 15. It was a very happy marriage. It was a very traditional marriage in the sense that he was the earner. He did all the paperwork. He ran the home. He did everything logistical for my grandmother. We were in India when he passed. About five or six days later, she flew back. She got out of the car in Delhi. She was only 65 at the time. Her hair having gone from black to gray, seemingly overnight. I remember her being sort of held up by my father and her other sons-in-laws as she 
came into the only home she had ever lived in. And um, she took over her life. My mother, her sisters, they asked her if she wanted to come to live in America. They asked if they, they should stay with her. She said no to all of it. And with a strength wow. that I have never witnessed since in anybody, she said, I'm not going to switch to wearing all white saris. My other grandmother did when that grandfather died. She said, I'm not going to remove my bangles. I'm not going to remove the powder from my face. I'm going to keep the color in my life. I'm going to live in this home. I'm going to live by myself. And I'm going to continue to live well. And that's what she did. And, you know, she would have her fish fry and her whiskey in the evenings. And she would wear her <laughs> colorful and she would wear her colorful saris. And I think as I got older, that's when I, more when I realized the strength that she had brought to her entire life that I hadn't understood when I was younger. Right, right. Can you talk a little bit about the family's refusal to be nice to one another? That's really compelling. <laughs> yeah, you know, a lot of Indian families. I don't think this is necessarily just mine. We don't say I love you all the time. My parents, I'm very close to my family. But if one of my parents were to call me out of the blue and say that they loved me, or if they were to hug me even after a long separation, I would be terrified. I would be shocked. Wow. Wow. I would really be wondering what bad news is coming. Yeah. <laughs> because that's just not how we communicate. And it's funny because, you know, now I'm married to a white man who, yes. for who, whose family language is the obvious love language and mine right. is not and so i think you know mike when he first joined the basus i think he always thought that oh are, are you fighting is everything okay <laughs> because also we would switch in and out of english and bengali when we talk right and then i would have to say oh yeah no we were just having a really friendly chat we show our affection in other ways including criticism yes and i think that's actually really helped me in my life as both an actor and a writer because i've had thick skin since i was young it always makes me nervous to write or say these things in America because I feel that everyone's going to try and toss me into therapy immediately. Right. But the fact of the matter is that I am very close to my family in my own way without ever having to say these words. Someday, maybe in a eulogy somewhere for my parents, I will wax eloquent about how much I truly loved them. Sure. But I don't think I'll do it yeah. when they're alive and well. So this was the Father's Day tweet. It said, happy birthday to Kaushik Basu, whom yes. I thank for both my nature and nurture and for whom I knitted this extraordinarily stunning scarf and who let his granddaughters put a little party hat on him. And so that got 22 retweets and 662 likes. Now, I do hope people look at this picture because not only is the scarf stunning, but it's also inappropriately long because I don't really have a sense of knitting. It's like a whole <laughs> other person draped on top of your father. <laughs> that tweet, he saw it and he retweeted it and we never spoke of it. Oh, that's actually incredibly revealing. Tweet etiquette in the family. That's the kind of thing I want him to know, but I would never actually say. So actually, maybe what we're dialing into here on Twitterverse is that for you, expressing affection for family members is best done in tweets? I have books. You know, both my parents are very present in the windfall. I have a lot of affection for all my characters. Situationally, I have so much affection for all the characters I write, especially the flawed ones. Yeah. And I feel that I sprinkle my parents, my grandparents, my brother, my neighbors, all these people from my life, my husband. I sprinkle them all into my characters. My parents, when they were reading the book, 
my mother kept laughing and saying, oh, I see your father in this. And my father kept laughing and saying, oh, I see your mother in this. <laughs> oh, that's a real So joy. that was another way for me to communicate to them was by putting things that both could be laughed at or with. My family yeah. does value humor a lot. That was another sort of way for me to express things that I don't explicitly say. You said your parents are into humor. When did that appear in your life? When did you sort of feel like you were fell in love with humor or you you witnessed it in other actors or writers? Yeah, actually not actors or writers, but specifically my aunts. My father has four older sisters. Wow. And again, on the surface, they might come across as traditional Bengali women, but they were all viciously, delightfully funny. And I would wow. see them get together and I would spend time in Calcutta growing up and I would see these women just laughing with abandon and went so against this idea of, you know, the sort of quiet, downtrodden Indian woman. They were just so alive in their humor, these four women in their saris. I love them and I've, I feel very inspired by them. I remember a home filled with laughter, but I will also say the flip side of that. At a fairly young age, I learned the power of making people laugh. Right. And that was possibly a destructive thing to learn. Yeah. Because I become very quickly panicked in situations in which people are not laughing or situations that are serious or situations yeah. that are frightening or sad. I start to panic very quickly. And that's a lot of the root of my anxieties and some battles with depression that I've also had. When I'm sort yeah. of desperately seeking that joke and unable to find it or when I can see somebody else who needs it and I'm unable to provide it. Right. I get very scared and uncomfortable. More Twitterverse after the break. Welcome back to Twitterverse. I'm going to DM another tweet. It's wild how kids go from fast asleep to fully awake and jumping with no in-between time of sipping coffee and staring blankly out of the window, wondering what the point of it all is. And that got 14 comments and 41 retweets and 518 likes. You mentioned depression. Like I certainly have struggled with that all my life. Staring out the window and wondering what the point of it all is, is something that if you're depressed, you can really relate to. How has the influence of your kids on your own life, as it extinguish to some degree the depression just because you've got to move with them so quickly? That does help certain things. But so first, my first actual bout of depression was postpartum. Went to my doctor and so it was diagnosed, it was treated, it was incredible to have the treatment. I just never thought something like that was possible. Can I ask what you took that was like so? Well, I had never taken anything of any sort before. So maybe that was part of what helped. I did an eight-month course of Zoloft. Oh, and okay. I remember having this sort of distinct feeling one day I was in a rickshaw uh, driving home and I remember looking out and suddenly feeling as though I could see the outline of each individual leaf on a tree yeah and it pulled me out and I think I, I got so scared and so vulnerable when I had children right it was as if this part of me was just out in the world that I could not and cannot possibly protect fully forever Right. And so on the one hand, yes, I quite literally have less time for depression. On yeah. the other hand, I 
I confess, and I don't like to confess this because it... It's good for other people because a lot of them have the same thing, you know? And I write about these things. I do get people to respond. So I acknowledge that it's worth talking about, especially as an Indian woman who never talk about these things. But, right. you know, now my kids, they're learning so quickly. And that's why I feel guilty about this. They'll say they have a stomachache and I'll sort of be like, well, what is it? Why? Why? Do you have COVID? What, do, 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 are you sick? It's something we have to go to a doctor. And I start to spiral. And I'm very lucky that I'm married to someone who's a bit more even keeled than I am. Right, and, right. Is, and is able to sort of be my flight attendant and is able to make eyes at me and say, stop, stop. They're picking up on your nerves. I, and they do. They know now. You know, my, my little one who's three will be like, oh, my leg hurts. I probably shouldn't go to school today. And it works. <laughs> and I know that's terrible to raise them like this. So, so that's another thing that I work on because it's a combination of, number one, it's not healthy for me. And number two, it's not healthy for my children. And right. so recently, especially in the pandemic, because uh, we were in India when it hit and the whole country shut down overnight and you couldn't leave your homes. And we were in a small apartment in the middle of Bombay with two kids under the age of three at the time. And so I got very nervous, you know, like they would they would fall at home and they would get hurt and they would get bumps and bruises and the hospitals were all shut and you couldn't get into right. hospitals early in the pandemic. And so I went through another phase of being very scared. I've only recently started coming out of that where I'm not taking anything anymore. I'm not drinking alcohol anymore. I'm trying to make these changes that will hopefully lead me to mental stability, a narrower yeah. range of emotions. Yeah. So no, having kids, it's both. A lot of it is just so such a bizarre way of seeing the world anew. And so right. much of it is also this bizarre way of seeing potential threats. It says, when I lock them out because I'm working, and it has a picture of four <laughs> little hands trying to push under a closed door. And that had 12 comments and seven retweets and 446 likes. Can you talk about the, like, just the presence of your lovely kids in your life? I love it. I think it's hilarious. I think it sharpens my brain because I want to keep working and I want to do it in the midst of this chaos in my home and I sort of love that balance uh, because you know in many ways my life has quietened so delightfully. I used to party all night. I used to drink more than I ought to. I used to make lots of questionable decisions. Yeah same same. <laughs> I think that's why I like talking to you because I think we've both gone through that and then found this loveliness and silence and serenity and solitude. Right. I often go to bed at nine and I wake up at four. But so the chaos is now this controlled chaos. It's chaos that doesn't lead to a morning of shame and self-loathing. And also this chaos loves you in a way that you've probably never been loved. I presume the love of children is unlike any other love. Certainly I love them in a way I've never loved anyone. There's, yeah. who knows, <laughs> who knows what goes through their heads. But what's great is, and this was, you know, again, during the pandemic, I was trying to sort of find this balance of working from home while caring for the kids. We came to America early in the pandemic, so we didn't have the nannies. We didn't have any help. Obviously, everything was shut down. So the kids were with us sort of 24-7. At first, I had these feelings of guilt, you know, that I'm, I'm quite literally shutting the door on them. Or the, and, the, and I'm sure some of the responses are men shouting at me about exactly that, but that doesn't bother me. Do men do that? That's horrible. A few men a few men do. But yeah, men always sh find something to shout about. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I really wanted to, and I managed to keep working. And I'm, now I see how wonderful that is because my kids are old enough to understand my work a little bit. And I'm lucky that my husband both 
has the ability to also have some flexibility with his work. And, mm-hmm. you know, all this talk about sort of self-care and a lot of on social media, you see about how mothers need their time at, to go get their nails done or something. I think ideally, and I say this very smugly, but I feel I'm sort of at this point right now where I don't need that self-care. And I think ultimately, you know, self-care is such a, becomes such a concept of capitalism again, that right. you have to somehow spend money on yourself or you have to, you know, that you deserve this. But ultimately, you want to get to a point where you're not constantly looking for escape from your day-to-day life. That's so right. you want to sort of build this life that you don't have to hide from. Right. And so part of that has been trying to figure out how, how, how do I continue to be a writer while I have children? And I have to say that my career has changed and expanded in unexpected ways since I had children, partly my own ambition and my own desires, partly wanting to role model that, and partly also wanting to ensure myself that I have and will continue to have an identity beyond motherhood in order to really also enjoy motherhood more. I do know you've been doing some writing for television, and I would love if you could maybe just talk a little bit about that. The producers of the film King Richard reached out to me And they commissioned me to create and write a show for them. And I told them very honestly in our first meeting, I said, I've never written a screenplay before. I watch things. I used to act. So I know my way around the screenplay. And so he said very casually first, so just write a book and then I'll get someone to adapt it. I said, I can't just write a book (laughs) in three months. (laughs) He wanted to move on it fast. So he said, just just try your hand at this. And suddenly I thought, you know, this is sort of the hottest producer in town right now. And he's really, really encouraging me to do this. So I did it. I sat down and I started writing a pilot and a Bible. And he sort of held my hand through it. I got this crash course from an amazing producer in how to write a TV show. And it's it's moving forward. There's a director attached, the director that he wanted. So again, I've done this dance with the windfall. So I know that anything for the screen is sort of one step forward, two steps back. It's a slow progression, but it's inching along in the right direction. And I'm really having fun with it. Well, listen, Diksha, it's been truly an honor. Thank you seriously from the bottom of my heart for appearing on here. Gabe, thank you for having me. And thank you for being such a sort of, not just a champion of your fellow writers, but I feel you're sort of in the literary community that we spoke about earlier. You have almost a glue-like effect. I feel some of us sort of orbit around you. And so thank you for being that gravitational center. I'm I'm delighted to be of any service I can. And thank you for saying that. It really means a lot. It was such a pleasure. Uh-huh.